as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning so far we have, we have prayed, thanking God for his death. We have sung uh, several songs which gave praise and worship because of the death of the Son of God. And now we have celebrated the Lord's Supper, which is to do in remembrance of Christ's holy, solemn, but saving death. And uh, I wanted to put that at the onset before we dive into our passage for today, which is going to be in 1 John chapter number 4, verses 7 through 12. So I'd invite you to turn there. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. And think, think on these things. Uh, don't look at this as, well, we've got the Lord's Supper out of the way. Now we can move on to something better. No, look at this as a celebration. And uh, as we meditate on these words now in 1 John, it so ties in. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Again, as we examine the theme of love, and uh, you'll see the title of the sermon is Advent brings love. And of course, we know that that is simply another way of saying that Christ's coming brings love. And I thought there's no better way to think about and meditate on God's love than to focus on his death in the Lord's Supper. Last week, we had Fred Thompson uh, with us. If you weren't here, if you didn't get a chance to listen to his message from Psalm 23, I would uh, recommend you going on to the church website or on YouTube and take a listen to that. It was, it was very good and I enjoyed his testimony of his years of service. But uh, he gave us some great reminders from Psalm 23. And interestingly enough, I hadn't talked, uh, spoken with Fred at all about our, our themes um, of Advent this year, of which they typically are hope, love, joy, and peace. Um, but really from Psalm 23, he gave us some great reminders about hope, didn't he? And uh, specifically, these words have been in my heart all week. Um, Psalm 23, verses 4. Or verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Certainly the Holy Spirit knows how to speak, uh, even when we don't plan it out. That's the best way for it to happen. And as Fred spoke about uh, these words and his testimony of how the Lord had been his hope and had comforted him in times of fear throughout the years, even walking in death's shade, there is hope. Even walking in great distress, there is hope. Even walking in uncertainty, there is great 
hope. This Wednesday, a number of us gathered up at Frank and Nancy's home for the first of three Bible uh, Advent Bible readings. And uh, I would encourage you, if you didn't get a chance, maybe you could join us uh, this Wednesday at 6.30. But after we read the account there in Luke 1 of Zechariah and Elizabeth, that theme of hope, again, throughout the week, could not escape my mind. Um, there is immense hope displayed in that story of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and then, of course, John the Baptist, who would come from them. And it's displayed both personally in their lives, but also nationally. There is immense national hope because, as we reflected on, some of the last words in the Old Testament talk about a curse that will only be broken at the time when Elijah the prophet comes back. And what was the promise to Zechariah? It was that his son, his miraculous son, would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. The promise and birth of John the Baptist was really the the first turn of the cog in the gears of God's redemptive story in 400 years. 400 years of prophetic silence, 400 years of waiting for the faithful ones, which came down all the way to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were righteous people, trusting in the Lord, serving him, waiting on him, and God came through. There was great hope displayed in that. But there was also immense personal hope for them because when Zechariah was in the temple administering the offering of incense uh, before the morning's burnt sacrifice, angel the, or the Gabriel the angel appeared to him and said, your prayers have been answered. And the question is, what prayers? And certainly the prayers for the Messiah to come were part of Zechariah's prayers, but undoubtedly for years and years, the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth were for a child, maybe specifically a son, an heir, a namesake. And as they were older in years and barren, perhaps their hope had dwindled, yet personally, as well as nationally, God came through. In a miraculous way, he began the work of ushering in his kingdom, a new creation as John the Baptist would prepare the way of the Lord. So there is great hope. But that was last week's theme. And that was a, that little sermon was extra. You know, you don't have to pay any extra for that. That was free. Um, this week's theme is love. So um, if you remember last week, though, I'll tie, it, I'll tie it back in. If you remember last week, if you were here, Fred said that Psalm 23 was probably the most well-known Bible passage around the world. I think he's probably right. But he also mentioned another scripture that's probably the most well-known single verse in all the Bible. Do you remember what he said? John 3.16, absolutely. I knew, I told you I'd land the plane. Um, It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Certainly the themes of hope and love come together in this verse. And that simple and great profound truth displays the heart of the gospel message, the message that there truly is love in God and that that love was the primary cause of him sending Jesus Christ, his sinless son, to save whoever would believe in him. And that really is Advent, isn't it? That really is the crux of this issue. And it's it's wrapped up in love, isn't it? Now, it's not that love is is the greatest theme of Jesus' coming, 
And it's not that love is the, the greatest of God's attributes. There really aren't any that are greater or, or lesser. God is who he is in perfect harmony. But as we examine love today, know that it is great. It's certainly not the least. Now, if you've been a believer for any amount of time and you, you read Christian books and you listen to Christian media and, and you've attended several churches, uh, it seems that uh, the church goes through ebbs and flows of movements and changes where sometimes it feels that, if, that God's love is so emphasized that it's to the detriment of his other characteristics. But there are some times as well that it seems like we would avoid talking about God's love or else people might get the wrong idea, the idea that there's no need of forgiveness or repentance. As I was reading this week, I was uh, reading a, a few uh, paragraphs from, from John Owen. I enjoy reading after him sometimes. And he said this, it stuck out to me. He said, how few of the saints are acquainted in their experience with the privilege of holding communion with the Father in love. With what anxious, doubtful thoughts we look on him. With what fears and questions we have about his goodwill and kindness. At the best, many think there is no sweetness at all in him toward us, except that which is purchased at the high price by the blood of Jesus. People are afraid to have good thoughts of God they think it's presumptuous to view God as good, gracious, tender, and kind, and loving. Those were John Owen's words, of course, several hundred years ago, but that's still true sometimes today. Sometimes we naturally fear thinking too much about God's love as if it only exists in the cross of Christ. But may that not be true in our thinking. Uh, like John Owen said here, may we experience something of the privilege of fellowship with God in his love. Let's marvel in his love for just a few minutes. We've already marveled in it in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Um, so I don't plan to, to go on too long this morning. But as I was thinking about that, I remembered a picture I saw on social media this week where the, a pastor wrote, I don't plan to preach too long this morning. And then this picture came up, which says false information uh, reviewed by independent fact checkers. So hopefully, uh, hopefully when I say I don't plan to preach too long, it's not false information. Um, but I do want to focus on 1 John 4, 7 through 12 and look at the main ideas of that passage. And together, I hope we see this. The entirety of Christ's advent was the greatest manifestation of God's love. And our love continues to manifest God's love. First, we see the big idea, and that is simply this. God is love. This is, of course, that famous passage where we read those great and telling words that God is love. And as you think about that, just as a statement, there's really no greater degree to which you can display something than for it to be said that you are that thing. To be something is to maybe personify it, to, to show it perfectly, to exhibit it always, to, to not diminish or tarnish or blur the meaning of that thing. And of course, God himself is the only one who can be love perfectly in that sense. 
And it's a wonderful thought to think that God is love. But notice in the passage before it says God is love, it says in verse number seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Love is from God. That's important because it's one thing for God to be love, which he is, but God could be love without ever there having been humans or creation at all. God dwells in perfect love within his own being. That is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all exhibit and experience that perfect love in unity in a way that is mysterious and unimaginable, but it's always been that way. There's always been perfect love in the Godhead before creation ever came into existence. And if that's the only place that God's love existed, it would still be a tremendous existence of love because it's perfect. Yet in God's good will, there is more than just the Godhead. There is creation. And specifically, there are people, there are humans who are made in God's image, people who can know and experience something of God's nature, and love is one of those things that we can know and experience. That's why we say, yes, God is love, but for us, the only reason we know that, the only reason that comes into our experience is because love is from God. That is, there is a transfer. There is a sharing. There is a display. Now, we'll see that in a big way later on in this passage. But for now, think of those things together. Love as an attribute of God is seen and known by us because God is not just love, but love is from God. It has been transferred. It has been displayed, exhibited toward us. I wanted to look at a couple of passages along these lines. Last week, we thought about this in light of Thanksgiving. And if you read Psalm 136, you'll see this theme all throughout. But it says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We know that God is love. And because God never changes, that means his love is faithful as well. It is steadfast, just like he is. Another passage. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. It says, Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now, we often think of God's love uh, being most directly shown in the new covenant, but think of this word or this, this verse all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy where God's love is nothing new. His people have always been recipients of it. And in that verse, we see that it is faithful. And it's also part of his promise. It says there to a thousand generations, which really is simply to say to the end of the age. So as we think of Advent, we don't think of God's love coming as something that didn't exist before. We can simply think of it as being displayed in a grand way maybe in the ultimate way. The love was always there, as God was always there, but in the coming of Jesus Christ, perhaps the curtain was pulled back a bit more. The paper on the gift was torn away a bit more to reveal the grandeur of it all. 
And that brings us to the main portion of this passage. And that is this, God's love on display. The big idea, God is love, but there's a big event as well that all scripture is pointing to, and that is God's love on display. Focus on verses 9 and 10 for a moment. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I think these two verses say it about as clearly as any passage in scripture. John has started with the foundation. God is love. Love is from God. And now he tells us where we can primarily see that love coming to us. And it's in this that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. As you look at those two verses together, you see that they really basically just restate one another, this in a little different way. And uh, we see that a lot of times in the Old Testament, specifically in Hebrew poetry like the Psalms, where a concept is stated uh, really in two different sentences, just a little bit differently. And that was a memorization aid, it was a learning aid, it was an, uh, an aid of emphasis. So I think John really wants us to understand this. What is the great manifestation of God's love? What is love when we boil it right down? John tells us that it is God sending his son, sending Jesus Christ to the world. In this is love. In this is love. Again, for while we were still weak, Paul says in Romans 5, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows or displays his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Again, in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That last verse has always been a favorite of mine. From the time I was probably seven or eight years old, I remember learning that verse, and, and I would think about it often. And uh, it really helps, at least for me, to underline one of the big themes in 1 John 4, because God's love is said to do something. It's said to do something in 1 John 4. And what does it do? Well, really, it's two different things. First, it gives life. It gives life. Look at verse 9. In the love of, and this was the love of God made manifest, that God sent his Son into the world so that we might live through him. This is 
that new creation. It's the old things passing away, all becoming new, like Paul spoke of. Uh, John, the same John, said it like this in his gospel record in John 1.4. In him, that is in uh, the, the word or in Jesus Christ, was life, and the life was the light of man. So this love of God that comes down to us gives us life. Among other things, the promise of life was one of the things lost in the fall. Death had no rightful place in God's creation, but it entered by sin and the curse. So it's only fitting that in the new creation, one of the primary benefits is life, eternal life. But what else does God's love do? Well, verse number 11 or 10 gives us another thing. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His love gives life, but it also brings propitiation or satisfaction. And if you're familiar with the little book of 1 John, you know that John is coming back around to this idea because he already stated it earlier. In 1 John 2, he says this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's a big goal, right? But if anyone does sin, or we might say when anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. And listen, he is the propitiation. That is the satisfaction for the debt incurred by our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In the display of love at Advent, the sending of God's Son into the world, there was the giving of life, and that life had to do with the payment, the satisfaction for our sin debt, the satisfaction of the wrath of God. God is not all love. There is also his perfect and holy wrath, but just as God is not all love, God is not all wrath. There is also his character of faithful and benevolent love, the love that sends away for the guilty to be made innocent, for the slave to become free, and for the dead to be raised back to life, which is why John says, in this is love that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is why uh, observing the Lord's Supper this morning was uh, the greatest way that we as a church could biblically examine God's love here and now, because it brings us right back to that sacrifice, that sacrifice which poured love out, which offered light and life to those who believe, and which offered this satisfaction of God's wrath for those like you and me who are sinful. Going back to Zechariah's promised son, John the Baptist, it was said that he would prepare the way of the Lord, and this is what the Lord would do. You, child, he's speaking of John here, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, and this is the purpose, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us 
from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Remember, reminds us of Psalm 23, doesn't it? And to guide our feet into the way of peace. So God's love does something. It gives light, it gives life, and it gives peace through the forgiveness of sins. And that leaves us just with the the so what, or the application. And it's really simple. We can't labor this point too much, but it's so simple that it has to go stated. Let us love. That's the application for us as God's children, as followers of Christ. Let us love. Because God is love, because God sent his son, because God put his love on display, because his love gives us life, because his love forgives us and cleanses us, because his love causes us to be born again, then let us love. Now, we saw this in great detail just a few weeks ago, didn't we? Because in Matthew 5, uh, we read this. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, we noticed this when we studied that passage, but when we love, that is when we look most like our Father. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven because he loves his enemies. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. Well, doesn't John say something very similar here in verse number 12? He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's quite a statement. Nobody has ever seen the full display of God's glory and majesty on earth. Moses saw the afterglow in the cleft of the rock. Peter, James, and John saw a glimpse of it in the transfiguration of Christ, but nobody has seen the whole display of glory. And most people don't have any vision or knowledge of God to speak of. Yet, as we love, as we, his children, love, then he abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. That is God's new creation purpose. It comes to maturity in us. And we display him when we love. Again, the famous passage, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hang all the law and the prophets. The application to love one another in this passage in John uh, it really brackets both ends of this paragraph because he starts out, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And he ends, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In this, there is a command to love one another. There is a reason. It's because love is from God. And wrapped up in that reason, in those simple words, is the whole story of Advent. And there's also a promise. By our love, we know that we know God. And we've experienced the new birth, that new creation which comes because God sent his son into the world. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lord, this concept of your love is so vast, yet in a way it's something that we can begin to wrap our minds around because you've created us as people who have the ability to to experience love and to give it, at least in some sense, and especially those of us who have received your love now have been enabled to give that love in some sense. God, we know your love. We know the wonder of it. We marvel at it because it's beyond our understanding, but yet we we glorify you because of it, because we see it here and now. We see it in our hearts. We see it among your people. And all of that is because it was displayed most perfectly and fittingly in the death of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We praise you for your love. Thank you for your gift. Thank you for your coming. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let us stand.